It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Bert Martinez here. Thank you for joining us here on Money for Lunch. It is always a thrill, and I'm always grateful because you guys have made our show one of the top-ranking shows, uh, approximately 700,000 downloads every month. Thank you so much. One of the very first shows to be, uh, I think we were the first independent show to be on iHeartRadio, again, because of your support. Thank you so much. And now we have been working on a special that will be airing on Netflix. So stand by for more details on that. We were just uh, doing an episode in beautiful Las Vegas, uh, interviewing some key people there. So anyway, thank you so much. Let's start the show with a quote of the day. There are no secrets to success. It is a result of preparation, hard work, and learning from failure. Colin Powell. Real quick. My producer just reminded me, if you haven't gotten my free book, you can buy it on Amazon for $20, or you can just go to dominatingyourmind.com, dominatingyourmind.com, get the book for free. You pay a little shipping, a little handling. It's all yours, dominatingyourmind.com. Crush your fears, destroy your doubts so you can be unstoppable, dominatingyourmind.com. All right, let's get the party started. On the show today, Terry Lammers. Terry Lammers, certified valuation analyst and co-founder, managing member of Innovative Business Advisors. He was president and owner of Tri-County Petroleum for 20 plus years before joining Regions Bank as VP of Commercial Banking after selling his business in 2010. Armed with his vast financial expertise, and decades of hands-on business leadership, Terry now works with his team on innovative business advisors to guide current business owners looking to sell their enterprise as well as prospective buyers. Terry Lammers, welcome to Money for Lunch. Hey, Bird. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I, uh, I'm excited to have you here. I think this is, uh, this is an area that a lot of people are surprised about. And what I mean by that is there, and, and you correct me if I'm wrong, there seems to be a lot of people that never think about selling their business, right? They have no exit strategy. You know, hey, we're going we're gonna to grow this business. It's going to take care of our family and my kids are going to take it over and life is going to be great. But they never really think about the business, the valuation of the business, how to exit the business in case the kids don't take it over. Am I right or am I wrong on this? Uh, you're exactly right. And I think the most compelling word you said that in that whole statement, prized. Um, <laughs> I, call it the, I call it the ostrich syndrome. They don't want to think about it, so they stick their head in the sand. And finally that day comes, you know, finally that day is here. And uh, it's very and, – and a lot of times it's just very sad because there is a lot of surprises. And a lot of times those surprises aren't good. No. You know what? And, and – this became very apparent to me. Uh, my brother, who had built his business, and he had uh, received an offer to buy, uh, to buy his business for $15 million bucks. And after, uh, you know, taxes and, some, and, and paying off some, some key players and stuff like that, I think he would have netted like, I want to say, three or five million bucks, right? And... Uh, which is by you know, which is a good chunk of money, especially at that. I, I believe at that point in his life, he was forty something, so it would have been nice. And, and I asked him, "Well, what are you going to do with the money? What is what are you going to do after you get the money? You know, why are you going to sell the business to do what's next? Are you going to are you going to travel? Are you going to open another business? What would be, you know, what are you going to do with the money?" And he had no answer. Uh, he had no clear answer. He didn't know. And ultimately, he passed on selling his company because he didn't know what he was going to do next, which I thought was kind of interesting to watch this 
you know, uh, I guess open up the way it did. And I think, uh, again, it, it's going to surprise a lot of people, but five million bucks is a lot of money, but not if you don't know what you're going to do with it. You're absolutely right. And I'm laughing because I went through a lot of the things that your brother did, and but I actually ended up selling my business. So the day you sell the business, and then I had to work for that company for six months, but in that time, you're still pretty busy. But at the end of six months, you're looking at your phone. It's like, what happened to my phone? It doesn't ring anymore. And then uh, hanging around the house, watching Oprah or no, Today Show in the morning and uh, Price is Right at noon and Oprah in the afternoon. And after about three months, my wife looks at me like, you're going to get a job. You're not hanging around the house all day long. <laughs> but yeah. I had no idea what I was going to do with myself. And, and I just I didn't give it a clue. So there's there's a process to get through it. It's not as difficult as you would think. Yeah, uh, but but it's, it's it's as you said, it's a process, and I think people need to think about that. And I think this is also the difference between quote an a real entrepreneur that builds a business, sells a business, and moves on to the next project. That to me is a real entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur, whatever you want to call it, as opposed to a business owner who I have this business, I built it up. It's a great business, but it's also my livelihood. I mean, it's, it's what gets me up in the morning and keeps me moving. And, and, uh, and it's a slightly different mindset. You know, it is a little bit of a different mindset. And I would say at the beginning, I was a business owner and I worked with my dad. We had a family business and uh, we built a business from when I came back. I mean, I grew up with it, but when I came back in 1991, we was only at like $750,000 a year in sales. Um, when I came back, it was me, my mom, and my dad. And I jokingly say we, we had two trucks, and it was a good day if they both started. So through a series of 11 acquisitions, you know, we built it up to $42 million a year in sales. But in, I sold the company in 2010, but in 2006, my dad had a heart attack. And uh, that really just, he, thankfully, he survived, but he had to leave the business. And that really put a different spin on it. I mean, we were selling wholesale fuel and lubricants. Uh, and that was back, if you remember, when gasoline was $4 a gallon, and I think crude was around 150 And it didn't make you a really well-liked person around. Uh, you know, it was like owning a mean baby. So I had it valued and, um, we, you know, came up with a number. But then you talk about... So some of the things I didn't do is I didn't talk to a financial advisor. I didn't talk to my CPA because he was a, a big customer. And at the end of the day, you know, I did fine, but it didn't do near as good as what I thought it was going to do. So that's really why I have a passion for doing what I do now to help these business owners, um, you know, get to their exit and develop their exit plan and make sure they can carry out what their plans are for retirement if they have them. Sure, sure. All right, so let's dive into this. Uh, in your opinion, what's a great question for an interested buyer to ask a current business owner? Well, what's your plan? So are you, are you approaching that from the aspect of he's a potential buyer, he's looking at buying this business. I used to call that planting the seed, and mm. it, it made couple of years, it's funny, I have a coaching client, and we talked about this this morning. You know, if you're going to buy a company that isn't for sale right now, but you look at the owner, and you're like, well, he's in his 60s, you know, you got to ask, what's the plan? I got another company I'm working with right now, I'm playing intermediary on, so I'm, you know, buyer wants to buy, seller wants to sell, but they don't know how to go through the process. And these were two key employees of the company that approached the owner and said, what's your plan? we would be interested in owning part of this company. And the owner came to me and said, what do you think I ought to do? And it's a construction company. I said, this is perfect. You own a construction company. These things are hard to sell anyway. So it's a perfect exit strategy for them. And we're actually working through that right now. Yeah. I love the whole idea of planting seeds because how many of us can look back at a conversation where a seed was planted, you weren't thinking about doing this or that. And all of a sudden somebody says, you know, somebody planted the seed. Maybe it was a vacation. Maybe it was a, a birthday idea. Maybe it was, uh, you know, 
Uh, some radical girl that you never asked out. Right. Whatever it is, we've all experienced that. And all of a sudden that seed starts to germinate, right? It starts to grow. And all of a sudden you go, that's not a bad idea. I I probably should do that. But I love this idea of – go ahead. And it doesn't – you know, that first conversation is awkward. It can be. But it doesn't – the conversation doesn't start off with, you know, hey, Bert, can I buy your business? It's, hey, Bert, my name's Terry Lammers. just thought I'd, I never had the opportunity to meet you personally. I just wanted to stop by and introduce myself. And if there's ever a chance that we can work together, that'd be great. And a lot of times the first thing you get is, you know, you're going to surprise the person a little bit. And you'll probably get a little bit of stuttering and a, okay, nice to meet you. But then the second time you talk to them, you know, just say, we're going to stop by and say hi again. The response warm typically will warm up a little bit and say, hey, well, thanks for stopping by. Good to see you again. And maybe by the third time they're calling you and say, hey, maybe we ought to have that cup of coffee. Yeah. I have a client. Uh, he's a DWI attorney in Houston, Texas. And his whole thing is, you don't need me to say, put my number in your, you know, put, put my number in your cell phone, in your friend's cell phone, write my number down. He's all about planting the seeds. He says you may never you may never need me, but if you do, if you don't have my number, it's too late. So put it in your Yes, it does. Um it really does. Uh I could even go back to uh opportunities where companies sold that I wish I would have went back to planted the seed because I would have really liked to have owned that company. Terry, what are some non-financial factors to consider when buying a company? That's a great thing to bring up because that can often determine whether a company has value or whether it's just flatly unsellable. Uh, One of the ones that I point to all the time is the hub and spoke. So are you, as the owner of the company, the hub? You know, you're thinking of a wheel, and the spokes would be all do all the employees, the customers, the suppliers. Do they all come to you? And in that situation, if I take you out of that company, who's going to run it? Because oftentimes right. a person buying your company isn't buying it so they can run the company. They're, they're buying it for this thing to continue to build ca- you know, cash flow without somebody there. So it's really important to have a team of people there that if I take you out of that company, that company still operates just fine. There's another yeah. one that I, I, I like to, to talk about often. And that is what we call the Switzerland structure. This is coming from uh, the value builder system that we use as a platform for coaching some of this non-financial stuff. So the Switzerland structure, Switzerland was a very independent country, correct? So yes. is your company independent of any one employee, any one customer, or any one supplier? So you look at my company, for example, we had a lubricants blending contract with mobile. Well, just because you buy my company doesn't mean you're going to get that contract for mobile. Mobile has to determine that. And in fact, mm. the company that bought my company did not get that contract, but luckily they didn't need it. Or I like to tell the story of another customer that I had uh, while I owned the oil company it was a large trucking company, probably over 50 trucks on the road. Uh, they delivered all the milk for a dairy in town. We'll guess how many customers they had. One, one customer. You know, how sellable a company is that? If you don't have a really tight relationship with that customer, that's bad. (laughs) Yeah. If you have one customer, that's not a business. That is is not a business, Uh, at least not in my opinion, because at any given time, that one customer can disappear. You're done. So I don't know what you call that, but uh, maybe that's called a hobby. Maybe it's what? Well, it, it, you call it dangerous, and actually, what you call it yes. is customer concentration. You know, so if you're the buyer, that's one of the things you really want to look at, and that should definitely be one of your due diligence questions: is to see an accounts receivable list and see, you know, where that company's sales are. You know, most companies apply. You know, you heard the eighty twenty rule, right? Eighty yes. percent of the income comes from twenty percent of the customer. Well, how sticky are those twenty percent of the customers? Um, another non, or another non-financial thing that that is probably one of the most key non-financial things is recurring revenue 
does your, so I told the story about the construction company, right? They are harder to sell because you're always working yourself out of a job, you know, whether it's a building or a house or whatever, you build it, and I got to go find another one to build. Uh, it's very interesting that, like, insurance companies, accounting firms, uh, my fuel business was one, you know, Farmers were going to farm every year. People are going to get their taxes done every year. People have to have insurance. So those those companies will definitely sell for a higher multiple than companies that do not have recurring revenue. Yeah, absolutely. Those are some great ideas uh, because if you're looking for something that's a little bit more automated, recurring income is going to be crucial. Absolutely. If you are – you know, and again, I love the whole idea of looking at that customer base. You have one or two big customers. That's all you have. That is just, it's not a duplicatable business. Uh, it's just, yeah, you know, it's, you know, it's no different. I got burnt on that myself. I bought, I bought an oil company, one of the, the 11 that I bought, and I needed this company for their bulk oil facility. So that's something to think about if you're a business owner. Growing by acquisition is just a fantastic way to grow the business. But this company I, I acquired, they sold a large portion of their lubricants to a mine. And somebody brought it up to me, what if the mine closes? Like, the mine will never close. It's been open for years, right? Well, guess what? Two <laughs> years after I bought it, the mine closed. Oh, shoot. Um, yeah. But, you know, in that, in that situation, I needed their facilities as much as I needed their customers. So it was still a good acquisition, but but believe me, I mean, that, that is something that is uh, very important to look at when you're acquiring a company. No, oh, absolutely. That's crazy. Uh, all right. So, so let me ask you this. Let's say that somebody stumbles across a business. It's currently uh, profitable. It's cash flowing. It's, it's a nice business, but they only have one customer or two customers. Do you, you know, does that automatically warrant a massive discount? Will you look at this and say, hey, I'm not touching it? What, what is your kind of uh, strategy or take yeah. on something like this? Well, I think in situations like that, so there's a lot of ways to skin a cat, right? So yeah. um, there is a way to get this done. But uh, if I was to be buying this business, uh, I would want to look at, you know, obviously the long-term uh, contract that's in place or hopefully a long-term contract in place. What's the financial health of the company that that business is coming from? But as far as you buying the business, you know, even a bank is going to get nervous on that one. Uh, you're probably looking at an earnout situation. So, you know, you're going to pay for that business over a period of time uh, and not, you know, the have the proverbial closing at the at the boardroom table and it's all said and done. I mean, if that's what a person is going to want, then yeah, it's going to sell for a heck of a discount. I just can't see that that would be a scenario where you come in and write one check and it's all done. Yeah. So, and, I, and yeah. I've actually bought, I've, I've, I've had two companies that I purchased like that. So I could give you, you know, another example. One of them was a company. Um, it was the fastest company I ever bought. I bought it in three days. I found out on a Wednesday that they was they was closing the doors on Friday. So I gave the owner a call. It actually wasn't the owner. The owner the owner passed away, and a, a niece tried to run it, and she started losing money uh, terribly. So her brother, which was the nephew, came in, and they was just going to close it down. So I called them and I said, "What are you doing? You know, what are you doing?" And they're like, "This is a story. We're losing money. We're closing it down on Friday." I said, "What are you doing with the customers?" He said, "We're telling them to go someplace else." I said, "Hold the phone. I'll be right there." So down there, the place was about 30 miles away, and by Friday, he had a good attorney. We worked out a deal that I gave him 25% of the gross profit from the company for every, you know, of uh, 25% of the gross profit from every customer that I kept. And it turned out nice. to be a very fair deal. Um, you know, I think in, this was a smaller company, but, you know, they got a good chunk of money for the customers that I retained. And, you know, it was a great way for me to pay for it. I set that oil company up in our computer system as a salesman. And at the end of every month, I did the printout. You know, it showed me what the gross profit was for the month, drew a line times 25% and wrote them a check. That's so smart. That is a win-win for everybody. It, it limits so, everybody's risk. Uh, I love that because here's, yeah. a, here's a, a couple of kids that were just, just going to shut it down. They didn't know what they were doing. 
and you basically uh, gave them, you know, 25% of something. That's smart. Yeah. I, the second time I used that, so here's another scenario. Uh, uh, it was a single owner of an oil company, but he was about 60 miles from my uh, main base. And I knew, and it's out in the country, and I was like, I don't know any of his customers, and mostly farm accounts. Uh, I was willing to employ him, but if he got squirrely and quit, you know, and I paid him for those customers, then I don't have any connection to him, and I, I don't even know how to find half of them. So I agreed. I purchased his equipment, fair market value, which there wasn't much of. I gainfully employed him as a fair salary and as a bonus for the customers that we kept. I, again, gave him 25% of the gross profit for one year. So that was his, you know, goodwill in the business. And then uh, he actually worked for me until I sold the company, and he actually still works for the company that I – that I sold it to. So another good workable situation. Yeah, no, I love that. Uh, you know, it just goes to show you that it's just a matter of being a little, uh, what's the word? A little, a little creative. creative. Yeah. You know, yeah, and I love where, that. And that's where we really help people out. I like to work with companies that have a value between one and 15 million. And uh, if you, you know, if you have a company in that value range, you, you know, you need a strong team of players with you, and if you're going to sell your business, you need somebody with a little bit of business acumen to help you get through that transaction. All right, so let me ask you this. If somebody is looking to sell their business, what kind of attorney should a buyer or a seller have? What's your thought on this? Oh, I, I got – oh, my gosh. It just makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Um, you need an attorney that has experience doing mergers and acquisitions or is a transactional attorney. I can mm. tell you two specifically horror stories where the owner brought their estate planning attorney to the table. And oh the one company, it was, you know, about a $2 million transaction. So nothing, you know, that, that huge, but the buyer, was the one his friend was an estate planning attorney and is younger. So they come to the table with like a hundred page purchase agreement. I mean, it's ridiculous. And then they're, they're fighting over little things. I mean, read the chapter in my book on attorneys. <laughs> I mean, you, when you go through be specific, you know, I had a, tra I had a trademark on a brand of lubricants. I used a okay. trademark attorney. You know, if you're going to get divorced, use a divorce attorney. Uh, there's a there's a need for estate planning attorneys, but if you're going to sell your business, get an attorney that um, you know is familiar with M and A transactions. And the other most important thing about working with that attorney is you, as a seller, are going to have to make some business decisions. That attorney is there to give you advice and protect you. But at the end of the day, he's not there to to take over that deal. And a lot of times that's what happens. I mean, you see some really sad situations where there's a good buyer and there's a good seller and the attorneys get involved and just blow the thing up. And the owners and the sellers end up with a huge, huge fees, attorney's fees because of it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? And here's, here's my experience. And again, I'll, I'd love to get your opinion on this because most attorneys are risk averse. They are, as you said, they're there to protect you. Sometimes you have to make that decision. You have to say, okay, I'm willing to take this risk. I have been in a lot of M&A situations where an attorney says, you know, I'm not going to touch this. I wouldn't do this. And, and he's risk averse. He doesn't want to look bad if a deal goes south and, and all the other things. And so I've had, I've been in situations where an attorney says, Hey, I, advised you against that. So I'm going to draw up a piece of paper that says I advised you against that and you're going to sign off on it in case this thing goes bad, you're not going to be mad at me. And I've done that. I've signed off on a, on a decision because I felt it was the right decision, even though my attorney said, no, don't do it. Uh, and then on more, on more than one occasion, I've not listened to my attorney and it's come back and bite me <laughs> in the butt. Uh, and that's, you know, it's just part of the deal. Uh, you have to be willing to, to make that decision. And then on a lot of times, uh, a good M&A attorney, man, they can see stuff that you can't see. They are, uh, as you said, a transactional attorney can just help you think about different things. 
that you may not be thinking because in some cases, back to what you said about being creative, in some cases, maybe it's not the money you get. Uh, it's not always about the money you get. Sometimes it's the, the goodwill. Sometimes it's the, um, the intellectual property. Sometimes it's, it's different things that maybe you're not seeing the big picture and somebody with that, that second uh, set of eyes can come in and, and maybe guide you. So I love that. Love that. That suggestion yeah. of getting a transactional or an M or MA attorney might cost you a little bit more money, but man, it's totally worth it. Yeah, but you know, if they do it right, you shouldn't have the near the hours involved because that's right. You know, you get attorneys start fighting back. You know, I mean, we bought a property management company, and my God, we went back and forth a whole day on on um, hazardous material. It's like it's a freaking property management company there is no hazardous materials why are we worried about this right and that's the kind of stuff i'm talking about sometimes you just got to step yeah. in and say okay uh let, let's play nice this is ridiculous all right let me ask you this what in your opinion is the number one deal killer in selling a company overvalued yes. i mean if the company's overvalued it's just it's just a deal killer. Uh, so I'm a CVA, Certified Valuation Analyst. That's a national designation, and we do a ton of business valuations. And I even see other CVAs put some price tags on things that just it ruins the deal. Um, I, one of the things that I really hang my hat on, especially if it's a company that's got less than a million dollars a year in cash flow, is is it a bankable deal? So if I value your company at $5 million, can you go out and put it to a bank, you know, a traditional banking source, and put a reasonable down payment down and pay for that company in, in typically three to five years? That was always my triggering point. Um, if I could pay for the company in three to five years, it's going to be a bankable deal, and, and you can get the deal done. Uh, if you get over – you know, you know you, the higher up the food chain you get, the more you're getting into other multiples, and you don't hang your hat on that bankability method as much. But uh, but we really look at that hard. Is is this a bankable deal? And I've even seen it in other valuators' um, work that they do the same thing. Uh, sometimes when somebody's valuing a company, they'll use what's called a discounted future cash flow method. And that means they're they're putting some kind of growth rate on the company and they're valuing the future cash flow of the company. And we had a situation last year where a valuator used this method and came up with a value of $15 million. And we had told the buyer eight and the seller was originally comfortable with eight until somebody put the 15 million in his head and it just wasn't a bankable deal and it, and it never did get done. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think what happens is, you hear these crazy multiples out there. Uh, Lyft just went public, and they're trading at you know, they're trading at some funky multiple of future earnings. They're non-profitable. They're they have virtually no assets, but that is because it's a Wall Street deal, and people and, and they're playing with other people's money as opposed to playing with your money. And so when you yeah. hear a company that, hey, I'm, you know, again, like Lyft, or I remember when Yahoo was trading at 20 times expected earnings, this is back in the 80s, 90s. Yeah, that's great. But that's not real world stuff. That, that is pie <laughs> in the sky stuff. And, and, and so yes. it's, to me, it's two different worlds because it's two different type of buyers. And so, uh, yeah, this yeah. overvaluing oh. your, your, your deal is a tremendous deal killer. And, uh, and I like the fact that you suggest, hey, if I can take this deal to a regular bank and get it funded, we're probably in the right ballpark. Yeah, right. So, but here's another thing, Bert, that I think is really important for your listeners to pay attention to is be careful if you're going to go the SBA process. So with SBA, you can get a 10-year amortization schedule on, a, on when you're buying a business. But here's what happens. Bankers are out there to sell loans. You know, they want to loan you that money if they can get all the ratios to work. And I see situations where they'll get that debt service coverage ratio, which is, you know, um, it's a ratio of income. So every dollar worth of income, you got to every dollar worth of debt. And in my opinion, you want to see where you've got about a dollar eighty in income for every dollar worth of debt. That would be a 1.8 on a debt service coverage ratio. Usually a bank's minimum is 1.2, 1.25. But they'll stretch that out 
the business, the value that business over 10 years and say they get you to where you get a debt service coverage ratio of 1.3. Well, that's, it's a pass, right? You're good right. to go. Well, that's still a very leveraged number. And now you're going to be paying for that company for 10 years. And, and that company was overpriced, but the banker sold the buyer the loan and now the buyer stuck with that leveraged company for a long time. And that's where you see a lot of failures or, um, it's just something to really watch out for that you're not overpaying for the business. But that didn't kill the sale of the business. It got it done, but unfortunately, it strapped a buyer for a long time because he paid too much for it. Absolutely. All right. Um, listen, we are at a time. Terry, I want to say thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, Terry, if somebody wanted to connect with innovative business advisors, if they had some questions, what's the best website? Uh, our website is www.innovative, boy, Apple for business advisors, uh, innovativeva.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my book, You Don't Know What You Don't Know, is on Amazon, or you can download a free um, – you can download an email version on Kindle for free. Uh, just search my name or you don't know what you don't know. And Terry Lammers is spelled L-A-M-M-E-R-S, Terry, traditional spelling, T-E-R-R-Y. Terry Lammers, thank you so much for stopping by today. Thanks, Bert, and uh, uh, thanks to all your listeners for listening. You bet. Good stuff there from Terry Lammers about buying or selling your business. Buying or selling a business? Anyway, you know what I mean. Listen, let's help everybody uh, learn more about how to value your business, how to buy a business. Let's share this episode with everybody we know. And as always, my friends, thank you for being here. We're created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com. It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. All right. Welcome to Money for Lunch. My friends, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for your support. Let's jump right in. I have... The quote of the day, ready to go. Quote of the day is by Susie Orman. Susie Orman is a financial advisor type person. Uh, you can, I think she has her own show, Susie Orman Show. Anyway, the quote is, if there's anyone dependent on your income, parents, children, relatives, you need life insurance. You need life insurance. If there's anyone dependent on your income, parents, children, relatives, you need life insurance. And that is by Susie Orman. And no, I'm not trying to sell you life insurance, but it's something for you to think about. All right, let's get this party started. On the show today, Rena Patel. Rena Patel has helped countless children, parents, and educators over the years by providing them with effective tools they can use. She is happy to share her insights and provide the information to anyone, oh, in one of your upcoming segments, I'm <laughs> just reading my notes that shouldn't be on my uh, teleprompter. Okay. Every children learns differently. It is the preferential way a child absorbs, processes, comprehends, and retains information. If you understand your own learning style, then you know how to adjust yourself to the most optimal mode, therefore meeting your overall intellectual potential. I love that. Rena Patel, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. You bet. You bet. It's good to have you here. And I want to um, talk about how you got into this uh, area. Talk a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in this area of helping people learn and, and helping them develop uh, through their own learning style. Um. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm actually I'm an educational psychologist and behavior analyst. So I, by my own interests, um, love studying human behavior and what motivates all of us to do what we do. And so add that to learning, which is um, a degree uh, that I got uh, many years ago, over 20 years ago, and um, worked exclusively with school districts, um, trying to identify what was hindering individuals, you know, a student's learning, whether it was a learning disability or if it was that a child was gifted. It was really what made them tick and makes them tick and how can we excel them and, and get them the supports that they need. So it evolved that way. I, you know, furthered my interests. I have a background in, in counseling and just working with families and, and um, all you know, all types of children, children who um, what we say neurotypical, typically developing, to children who have special needs, all the way from birth through, through college. And um, I just went private. I wanted to, you know, think, I was thinking outside the box, how can we access families more? How can we get them to the next step? Um, and so I've just been doing that, uh, personalized, customizing um, different ways um, once I've assessed individuals and whether they're students in school to younger children to children in college and developing a plan that works for the entire family because as we know, um, you know, I have children myself, it's, it takes a village and it's a whole team effort um, to help them succeed in life. And the way I look at things really is how can we teach them autonomy? How can we help them know the best way that they learn how they can be successful so they can be off on their own, right? Our children are not going to live with us forever, and that's not the goal. <laughs> yes, let's hope that's <laughs> – let's hope, right? Uh, right? You know, there are some parents listening to this going, uh, that's the way – it hasn't worked out that way for me yet. They're still living with me. So, uh, yeah, but that is the goal is to have them uh, become dependent and move out and – uh, it's interesting. Uh, we are down to our last two kids. We have a set of twins and they just turned 18 and they're exploring their different options. And my wife is having withdrawals and they're still living with us, but she's already in full blown uh, emptiness panic. So, uh, right. You know, right. It's, it's, it's good that your kids are ready to leave the nest, but it, again, it's, it's sometimes it, it can be hard as well, but uh, overall that is the plan. So Good. Well, I'm glad that uh, uh, I'm glad you're here, and I'm excited to talk about this. Um, I want to start off about, you know, as I mentioned in the intro there, about the different ways that uh, we learn, uh, because we are all mm -hmm. different learners, and I, and I think people have an idea for that or have some idea of that, but sometimes we forget. Um, are there specific assessments? that you use to help children identify their learning style? Talk about that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and that's a great question. I, um, first of all, I, you know, um, I'm based out here in California, and I want everyone who's listening to know um, I'm accessible virtually. A lot nowadays, um, which I love what's evolved over my practice, is we're busy parents, and um, working with families and, and children individually, um, just this whole virtual platform has really um, made me access work, be able to work across the you know across the states and internationally, as well. And so there are specific instruments, they're standardized instruments, um, and also um, informal types of um, assessments that I do use to identify and help children. Um, understand and families understand how their child learns best. I mean, why are we doing this? Because every child is born, everybody's born with a potential. And our goal, and my goal as an educator or an educational psychologist, is to make sure our children are meeting that potential. I mean, it's a competitive world out there, and, and we need to equip our children with the tools so they themselves you know, once identified, you know, hey, this is how I learn best, and then are able to kind of um, navigate the world and, and make those changes and, and find those tools and resources to help make sure that they're meeting that potential. And so, yes, there's specific tests that um, a specialist can only give um, that help identify um, individual learning styles. And they're different, you know, when we think about, you know, so many years ago when we sat in classrooms, or even sitting in a college, um, when you're amongst um, in a college classroom amongst so many other students, 
And what is the typical way a teacher teaches? It's just through auditory modality, right? I mean, they're usually lecturing, <laughs> throwing right. a few slides here and there, or maybe, you know, a, a, what they call smart boards. Back in the days, we had chalkboards. Um, and, and that's how they teach. But the reality is, is most kids or most students don't learn that way. That's not the effective way that they learn. And so we're not as efficient as educators. And so really looking and, and when I walk into classrooms and when I walk into college um, rooms or when I'm uh, training educators, I'm really trying to remind them that we really need to take this multimodal approach to learning. Yeah. That's, uh, and you know what? Schools, unfortunately, had not have not a adapted to this at all. They're so way behind, right? Uh, and there's a lot of resistance to change. We have resistance from the teachers, which, you know, they shouldn't be so resistant. We have a lot of resistance from the, you know, from, I guess, political leaders, from commissioners, from just, there's just a lot of resistance to bettering our teaching environment. I mean, it hasn't been updated since the industrial age. Right. I mean, there's great, definitely technology. And, and I think the biggest challenge for teachers, and, and bless their hearts, I mean, they're just worked, to, you know, they're overworked. And so they're right. trying to find, okay, I've got a huge classroom. How can I teach to, to the masses? And, and what we really need to make sure happens is that we differentiate, um, you know, every child's different. So differentiate yes. our teaching style. And, um, and it's really educating them. And it doesn't take, it's really more about empowering our, our teachers and then helping parents, um, you know, advocating for them, advocating for their kids and, and letting them feel comfortable to talk to, you know, anyone who's around them, their educators, the principals, the administrators, that this is how my child learns best. And then the first, you know, the first step is, well, how does your child learn best? And I can, you know, give a few tips and tools, you know, what is it that you see? Um, and we can talk about this um, BARC model, but really finding out specifically, is this the way my child learns best? And then taking that information and what I call data and saying, hey, you know what? This works for my child. So they do need a piece of paper on their desk to help them track, you know, versus the board. Or they do need to listen to more books on tape. Or they do need some hands-on kinesthetic learning because they just by listening to it or seeing it isn't the best. They really need to trial and error, you know, and feel it and, and use some manipulatives, whether it's counting beads or um, actually, you know, trying to um, navigate um, in forms of, you know, think about something like robotics. Um, how you know kids um, put together some basic things as Legos, um, but they're able to see the bigger picture. And so everyone learns differently, and um, and that's really what my goal is: is to help um, parents and educators kind of identify what that child needs, and then and make a game plan for them. For them. Yeah, I like that. Let, let me ask you this: uh, if somebody. Um, wanted to, again, explore this idea of how does my child learn best. Uh, it sounds like the first thing they need to do is take some kind of, uh, not, not a, it's not a test really, but some kind of, which uh, uh, word I'm looking for. It, uh, it is. They have to do an assessment. Yeah. So assessment, thank you. An assessment. Okay. Yeah. So they take an assessment. assessment. So, which is, okay. Yeah. And, and, yeah, they and, need to uh, take an assessment. Okay, and so this will this will kind of pinpoint. Oh, look, this these are the strengths. Here are the weaknesses. That kind of stuff, and then they can better uh, help their child. And I like this idea of becoming an advocate for your child. Uh, and what's interesting to me is that we see a lot of parents today becoming an advocate for their child's behavior and trying mm -hmm. to minimize when a child behaves badly. We see a lot of this. And the reason why sometimes the child will act out in class is because they're having a difficult time learning. But if you become an advocate mm -hmm. for your, the way your child learns, then behavioral problems will diminish, if not go away. Your child has a better experience. Everybody's happier. Right. When you think about behavior, and, and, and that's my background as well, I'm a behavior analyst. And, and um, um, so one of the things that there's four reasons why um, individuals 
behave. Behavior is a form of communication to us. And so mm. they're either trying to get out of something or they're trying to attain something. Those are two right there, attention um, and, and escape. And usually what happens when they're trying to get out of something, it's because the demands or what we've asked for them to do, let's take example academically, is too challenging or it's something that they don't understand. And so really being that detective, whether you're in the house or you're in the classroom or you're out in the, in the field, is why is that individual um, demonstrating certain behaviors? Why are they acting out or why are they saying, no, they can't do it or they don't have time or they're not as motivated? Well, you know, oftentimes they're trying to get out of something that you've asked them to do and it's probably because they don't understand whether it's the directions, the instructions, or it's, to, it's not presented in the way that they can understand it. They haven't grasped the concept. And so we need to go back to the drawing board and say, hey, how did I present this? How did I try to teach this? Did I meet their learning style? Did I teach it to them the way they know how to learn best? And, and every one of our children are, you know, I have three, and they all learn differently. And so it's not a cookie cutter system. And so our educational system can't be that way either. And so right. um, going back to differentiating learning, but yes, an assessment, you know, a test, you know, we use intelligence tests, I use academic tests, I have um, personality inventories. I mean, there's so many instruments um, that we use to come up with a comprehensive, um, you know, report and kind of and share it. And, and, um, and what's interesting is I look at parents and when I work with parents is I'm teaching as well. And, and so they're, everyone's a different learner. And so my reports also um, show different ways. I mean, it's, it's visual. It's got some words in there. And it's, you know, we, I'm talking at the same time. And I'm, you know, we're doing some practicing. And I'm showing and demonstrating and modeling. And so I'm using that multiple modal approach um, in, so in the way I work with families in general. And so our children definitely need that as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so we've talked about uh, the model, BARC, B as in Victor, A as in Alpha, mm -hmm. R as in Robert, K as in King, and, and talk about what BARC stands for. Sure. I mean, BARC uh, it, I, is created by a great educational theorist. His name is Neil Fleming, and he really – um, was the catalyst of, of, of starting all of this for us as educational um, psychologists. But the V in VARC, this is an acronym. It's a really easy thing for all of us to remember. Um, but the V is the visual. This is our visual learner. And basically that is a huge percentage of our population. We learn best with the use of images, maps, diagrams, Gra graphic organizers, you know, the, the brainstorming before um, you write an essay. Um, and that helps us understand what is presented to us. And so that's that a lot of um, pairing with everything that we do is visual. Things that we see, that's how best we learn. And so that's your V. And then the A is the acronym in the VARC is, is that auditory learner. And there, there are not too many auditory learners. However, that is the 90% of what is, the way we are taught is auditorily, right? And right. so within the first few minutes, we've tuned out because we just can't retain that information and process it. And so that auditory learner learns best just by listening and speaking in situations. And that's that large group discussion and, and um, you know, using mnemonics, repeating and listening to auditory books, you know, if you list, drive, you know, on the freeway or going somewhere and you're listening to that auditory um, book, uh, you know, what books on tape or you're listening to the radio um, and you understand, you know, 90 to 100 percent of that information, you are that auditory learner and that's great. And so, but a lot of us are not and that's um, something to keep in mind. And then the R is the read and write of the acronym. They really do learn best. This learner learns best through words. Um, they love reading, and, and they're really good note takers, um, copious notes, anecdotal notes, um, and that's how best they understand. So they're writing everything out, reading it over and over again, and say, okay, that's how I can retain that information. And um, taking something that they've seen or they heard and then taking notes on it really is how they learn best. And that's that read and writer. Um, who do really well in a school setting because, again, that's how things, information is really presented. And then the last um, is the K, and this is the one that I always feel is the hardest to try to find the best way to present the information because I don't think schools um, 
are equipped as much. I mean, yes, there's technology and they're giving them um, tools, um, but the kinesthetic learner for the K and VARC really learns best through tactile touching. I think of senses, sensory, and they're very hands-on. And, and as they're younger, when they're in preschool, we're able to let them explore. But what happens over time is we get rid of all of that. And um, But they individual learners understand information when they manipulate materials and put small pieces together and make it a whole. Yeah. So that's you know, the so, model. <laughs> I, I like that. And it, what's so funny is, is I'm, I'm listening to you talk about the kinesthetic uh, learner. And I, you know, I think that as, as toddlers, um, when I say toddlers, maybe it's, uh, I just remember that all of my kids, at one point when they were able to manipulate their hands, right? So let's say from the age of, mm -hmm. I don't know, five, six months till I don't know what age, uh, they, there is, uh, you know, everything goes in their hands, goes in their mouth, right? And I just thought that was unique that, mm -hmm. that babies, you know, tend to explore that way, mm -hmm. right? So, so it fits in my hand, right. unless, you know, they, they, they try to put it in their mouth it, and, and it's obviously they're getting some kind of data from that, right? Uh, and, and of course, right, uh, later right, on, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's just it's just interesting. All right, so uh, let's let's explore this. Uh, once you understand your child's preferred learning modes, uh, mm -hmm. how can you best use that because I'm thinking, you know, even though, okay, let's say that you, you're going to advocate for your child at school. Again, you mentioned, you know, schools are huge classrooms. Some teachers aren't going to care that your child is kinesthetic or is, you know, uh, visual or whatever. They're like, you know, whatever. So, so can you, so what's the best way to support your child um, once you've identified In a learning that learning style. mode? Yeah. 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 Um, I, you know, it, it's the, the biggest hurdle is really just first identifying it. There are tons of resources and tools to match your learning style. And so once you've identified how best you learn, and, and, and just, just because we learn a certain way doesn't mean that we don't use the other modalities of learning, right? I mean, sure. we tend to compensate. And so I just want to make sure, I mean, especially thinking about, I mean, the colleges and how competitive it is and, and to get into colleges and get into schools. And, and it's really the most, a lot of the questions that parents come ask me is like, how do I make sure my child is getting everything that they need and they're using all of their tools? And, and so one thing that I do is that we do, we do these evaluations, these assessments, and once we identify what it is, is we come up with a plan. And, and I involved the, the, the child because it's important, one, again, to teach autonomy and, two, to give them the tools so when they're out there in the real world, they're making sure that their environment, um, their work environment is set up, set up that way as well. And so take, for example, the visual learner. Well, that tells me that the tools that they need are Think, uh, you know, uh, that visual schedule, like to make sure they have that daily schedule, whether it's on their phone, whether it's written it out on a planner, that's going to help them keep organized. Use of color, whether it's use of highlighters, post-it notes, um, colored paper clips to um, making sure that your Excel sheet has color, it's color-coded, will really yes. make things stand out and help them navigate the world. And so when they're looking at things, and, and as, young, as a young elementary school child, one of the things that I say is, you know, if they're just reading, um, and research supports this, is black on white, I mean, it's going to be hard. You know, all of our books are white background with uh, black text, right? And it's just so busy. And so one of the things I do is, um, you know, you can purchase and, if you go onto my website and stuff, I've got these great resources and um, where you can get them. But um, these yellow transparent um, bookmarks, because yellow transparency, and think about a highlighter, think about a yellow kind of sh sheer paper over um, black print really makes the words stand out. And so those are just small examples of resources and tools that enhance a visual learner. And so that's one way of doing it. So these are the steps. You assess, we find out how your child learns best, and then we come up with that, 
that plan? Like what tools and what resources? And then oftentimes I work with families, um, whether they do it themselves or they have me along, it's just we share that information. You know, what, what use is having great knowledge if you can't share it with others and say, hey, you know what, I've identified and I went somewhere, or we've done some research on our own, how I learn best or how my child learns best. I wanted to share this information with you because maybe it will help us as a team. The one thing educators are not really good with is when you kind of say you have to do. Um, I need you to do this. And I use a lot of declarative language. I use the word let's. And really coming and approaching it as a team approach because, you know, your child is in the school for so many hours a day and then they're home, right? And then you've got them right. for so many hours a day, whether it's homework struggles or trying to get them to get from one act to another. So really it is that whole team approach um, across the board. And I think if you present it that way, you will get great response from your educators, your teachers. Let me, let me ask you this. Uh, you mentioned that you're, uh, you know, that you're available virtually, but I don't have a website for you. So if somebody wanted to reach out oh. and talk with you, what's the best website? Yeah, it's um, www.renabelikeboypatel.com. And I have a list of all my educational and behavioral support services. I do them individually. In fact, I have a great one, a virtual workshop coming up April 24th um, at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And what's so wonderful, we're talking about everything parenting. Um, we're actually talking about positive discipline. And, but in that, a lot of these tools and tricks come out. Um, and you know, what's so great about the virtual world, again, is you can be in your car, on your smartphone, uh, you know, at work, behind your computer, and just click on the link and attend an interactive virtual seminar by me. And so I love doing them. I think it's so effective. And, um, again, you can access that and at my social media um, as well as at Rena B. Patel. Uh, you'll find me on Instagram, and you'll find all this information about how to attain my services and also attend um, any workshop that I do virtually. Uh, it is a specialty field, and so you do, you know, you can find so much stuff online, but you don't know what's credible, right? You don't know what's true right. and, and what's tried. And so anything that I, I've, um, you know, recommend is not only something that's empirically research-based and is tried and tested, but I as a parent have done it. I use it all the time with my own children. So I'm always, I'm, I'm a very realistic person when I come to making recommendations. I understand um, that we're busy and things need to be practical and, and um, we need things to be consistent for our kids, but we're we have real life. You know? <laughs> it comes in the way, so we don't always are able to do everything by the book. Right, right. I love that. All right. So it's Rena, R-E-E-N-A-B, as in Bravo, Patel.com. Yes. Okay. And uh, so you guys can reach out to Rena there and see how she can help you uh, with your uh, kids' uh, learning uh, strategies. And sometimes, even as adults, uh, sometimes adults need some uh, tweaking. Maybe they're not aware of their learning strategies uh, and so uh, that might be good, uh, you know, might be good for, some, for everybody in the family to take the assessment and find out how everybody learns. And uh, so I think that could be a, a great opportunity. So check out Rena, R-E-E-N-A, B as in Bravo, Patel.com. Uh, and uh, when is your upcoming uh, virtual workshop? It's coming up soon. It's April 24th. I have a few spots left. I limit it, limit it to about 10 seats because I want to make sure everybody, just like we were talking about right now, everybody's learning style is met. Everybody gets their questions answered. Um, but it is, um, I do have um, other ones that come up at April 24th, 4 p.m. Um, you can even go on to eventbrite.com to um, search my name and my event will come up. Uh, it's, it's only $40, which is very reasonably priced um, for, for what we do in, in getting a lot of um, these tips and techniques and, and um, specialty advice. Um, where we're talking about positive discipline, and it's really talking about behaviors and how to make sure our children are um, you know, just doing what they need to do, making great choices in life, but how to manage some of those most challenging, difficult behaviors, whether they're young children to teens to college kiddos, 
um, you know, just getting them to uh, do what they need to do in, in, a, in an acceptable way and making those right choices in the world. I mean, it's, it's a, a challenging environment that we live in for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. So check out uh, RenaBPatel.com, helping your child learn better, faster. Rena Patel, I want to say thank you so much for stopping by. Looking forward to have you back. Thank you. Thank you so much. You bet. Good stuff there from Rena B. Patel. And you can find out more about her at RenaBPatel.com. I'm going to put it here in the show notes. Check it out. If you want to make your life easier, helping your child learn better and faster is one of those keys. If you, as an adult learner, are struggling, maybe finding out your strengths, finding out your mode of learning might have a humongous impact on you. My friend, let's share this episode with everyone you know. Let's help as many people understand and leverage their learning mode. Remember, you were created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch and check out our website at moneyforlunch.com.